Hey friends, before we jump in today, I wanted to take a minute to say thank you for joining us for 100 episodes of the Living Centered Podcast. It is an incredible milestone that I don't take lightly, and we are so grateful to each and every one of you who join us week in and week out, who rate and subscribe and listen and share with your friends. We are so grateful to get to do this, and we can't wait to keep at it. Hope is faith for the future, is a memory for the future, and then love is how we practice it in the present. And so for me, as a creative person, looking through my life through the lens of that, letting the space-time continuum completely explode and implode and invert, is now giving me the freedom to live a life that I never thought was possible. It's still really hard. This is still my thing. This will always be my thing. But I'm feeling a level of freedom in my own life that certainly is unlocking spaces of creativity in my art that I also never thought possible. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, this week I get to introduce you to Blaine Hogan, writer, film and creative director, and author of the new book, Exit the Cave, Embracing a Life of Courage, Creativity, and Radical Imagination. Lindsay and I had the most interesting conversation with him all about the gift of rock bottom and how he rebuilt his life in a way that brought him more freedom, creativity, and courage than he could ever imagine possible. His story is so powerful, and he's such an incredible storyteller that I just felt pulled in the whole interview, and I loved all the twists and turns that our conversation took. What I took away from this interview is that while many of us have face plant and rock bottom moments, it's what we do next that really defines the way we live our lives. So without further ado, let's jump into this conversation with Blaine. Hey, everybody. I'm so excited to have my friend Blaine Hogan on the podcast today. Blaine and I met, I think, in person for the first time a few years ago. Yeah. I had kind of known of your name. And okay. maybe we met in like a long time ago, but all I know is that I met you at a cafe in Franklin and you were about to give birth to your incredible <laughs> baby boy. <laughs> I know. It was now a year. So it was a couple so years yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah. Last year. Yeah. But um I have followed you for a long time and admired your work. And you have just released a new book called Exit the Cave. And when we met in that cafe in Franklin, we just swap stories. And so I think you have such an interesting story and you're so relatable. And as you shared with Mackenzie and I earlier, like you're so forthright with your story that I just would love to hear or have our audience hear a little bit more about you and sort of who was Blaine Hogan? Yeah. Yes. So I grew up as a, uh, grew up in Minnesota. I thought my whole life I wanted to be an actor. And eventually that dream came to fruition. I was living in Chicago, working in great theaters. I was going back and forth to New York. I had a very small role in a popular TV show called Prison Break. And uh, it was about that time that my life kind of 
fell apart. My story had caught up to me. Um, the body keeps the score, as we all know. Uh, I could no longer outrun my past and an addiction that had been ferrying me along the way had finally come to a head. And as I began to unpack what was going on with me, it was through the lens. For me, my sort of breaking point was a panic attack that took me to the emergency room. And I thought I was going to die. And as I began to unpack that experience and everything else that was happening in my life, uh, I realized so much of it was related to my past story and for me, my past abuse. And in that moment and in that season, I had been introduced to the work of Dan Allender, who I think a lot of people listening know. Uh, he had written a book at the time called The Wounded Heart, which is a book for adult mm -hmm. victims of childhood sexual abuse, which is my story. I began reading it and kind of huddled away in the Starbucks where I would normally be highlighting lines for auditions. I ripped the cover off because I didn't want anyone reading what I was What you're reading. reading. That's right. <laughs> Um, in fact, you can always know someone's like reading something sort of juicy if they've like taken off the, you know, the the book jacket if it's hardcover or they've they've ripped it off. You're like, ooh, they're going through some stuff. So <laughs> you like pay attention to that person. You probably want to be their friend, actually. And it was through reading his work that I uh, realized he had a graduate school that he had started in Seattle, and I was at sort of a crossroads. A uh, the gift of rock bottom, as I like to call it, and realize I was at this sort of life or death situation. I had seen how it was playing out with my dad, who was an addict himself, and knew I didn't want that and knew I was going to do need to do something dramatic to make a change. And so I called my agent and said, I'm going to take two years off and I'm going to, I guess, seminary. <laughs> and that's where I began uh, a lot of the journey that I describe in the book, the journey of my recovery, the journey of my uh, understanding, my abuse. It's where I began to reframe my past and uh, re-understand a kind of creativity that truly saved my life and then did the thing that they say that you cannot do, which is change your past. Mm, that's great. There's so much there that I want to talk about. Sort of starting at the beginning, sure. you talk about sort of having that anxiety or panic attack that sort of catalyzed you beginning this journey in the work. What was that experience like? And did it begin like an untangling? Did you kind of already know what the issues were? Or mm -hmm. did then you begin a deep dive? What was that, yeah, what was that experience like for you in a little bit more detail if you'd be willing to go there? Yeah, probably three or four years prior to that moment of the panic attack that broke it all apart, I had sat in a therapist's office in Indianapolis, Indiana, a man by the name of Dr. Michael Detner, and he said, yeah, this is an addiction. And that was the first time. So uh, my predilection was towards acting out sexually uh, in ways that I couldn't and could no longer control. Uh, so I had been named that. I knew that that was part of my story. It had been said there were witnesses. But as the anxiety grew to this point where I could no longer contain it, I knew that there was somewhere underneath, I had a sense that they were connected, but I couldn't somehow make the connection because the thing about an addiction for so many people 
is it's actually the thing that saved them as a child. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so for it's like me, it's a coping mechanism. It's a coping mechanism. It was how I was salving the wounds of my pain. And something that had saved my life years prior was now attempting to destroy it. And so the, the word I would use to describe it was incredibly confusing because it worked yeah. for so long. Yeah. The addiction worked for so long until it just didn't. Yeah. And were you already aware of what that, like your wounding was, that it was masking or, because I feel like for so many people there, especially right now, I think COVID and the pandemic in a lot of ways has like removed the margin. And a lot of people are kind of in the state of reckoning kind of that you're talking about where it's like my coping mechanisms that work so long don't work anymore. But I think, you know, there's a difference between, you know, when you know what you're running from and when you don't. Yep. Yeah, I had done some work on my story, some work on my abuse, but just kind of barely. Like I didn't, I knew it was sort of connected to it. Certainly like there was kind of a one for one of like sexual abuse and now acting out in this way. So of course, like I was making that connection, but nowhere near what happened the next two years where those connections really began to take shape and in doing so helped me find some kind of freedom. But I do, I would say, I mean, exactly what you're saying. I think that I experienced a different kind of reckoning that I talk about in the book uh, the last two years during COVID as we, mm. when I met you, Lindsay, as we, we talked, we were on this kind of grand odyssey. We had left Chicago. Our church had fallen apart. We'd spent two years traveling around the country trying to figure out where should we live with our three daughters uh, yeah. My work as a director, my wife's work as a writer, um, but but there was there's a gift. I, I said it earlier, the gift of rock bottom, and I think in many ways COVID brought to light and became ro- a rock bottom for a lot of people yep. to face some of these truths to realize, oh yeah, this this thing is a pattern. It, I no longer control it, or this thing that used to work so great isn't doing the 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 thing anymore. Yeah. Yeah, I think even just the way that you described, like it worked for a long time and it was serving a purpose. I think it gives a really normalizing and almost a graceful view to addiction and what we call onsite, at onsite a lot, like medicators, things that are yeah. helping yeah. us exist. Yeah. Um, and I remember one time hearing an addict describe that and saying he was grateful for his addiction because it kept him alive long enough to do the work. That's exactly right. Yep. I, a, I, I will say to that point, I had an amazing therapist who helped me. He would describe it as like a manager or a firefighter, that yeah. it, the addiction helped you manage the pain that occurred in your past. And so how do you bless it? How mm. could you be grateful for it? I just got off on Instagram Live with Laura McCowan, who wrote a book called We Are the Luckiest. She's the Luckiest Club, which is an online sobriety community. And that's exactly what she we talk about all the time in, in those meetings is we're the luckiest. We are the luckiest. Yeah, it's funny. Miles refers some to on-site kind of as like prehab of like trying yeah. to like help come alongside people before they hit rock bottom because that the work of recovery is like really available to everybody. Yes. And how do you begin to step into it before you're in the most desperate place? Yes. I think about it a lot like wildfires versus controlled burn. 
And so the outcome of both is exactly the same. Everything burns to the ground and you have this fertile soil ready for new life to grow. My hope and prayer is that, so I had to have a wildfire. It had, it all burned down in just an epic, just went down in flames. The other opportunity is exactly what you're saying is to listen to the pattern, listen to kind of, I, I, I wasn't able to listen to those moments. Anxiety was humming underneath the surface of my life for a long, long time. I didn't have the tools yet to realize, oh, that's a symptom. That's my body trying to yeah. tell me something, alert me to a place in my story that needed care. And so I think that's what I love about OnSite is that you are providing the opportunity for a controlled burn. Mm. That you are saying, let's put you in a crucible so that we can burn it to the ground in a safe environment where there's lots of people around you to make sure it doesn't get out of control so that you don't have to go through the pain of a wildfire, which I unfortunately had to do. Yeah. Uh, Some of the language that you were using, managers and firefighters, I think that's some internal family system language, which I think is fun. And we've explored that a little bit on this podcast. Yeah. But part of internal family systems is always trying to get back into get acquainted with that part of yourself that is um, your most true self, right? Like that's creative, that has curiosity and all those courageous and all the C's. And so you really talk a lot about how this has opened you up to a new level of creativity. And I would I would love to hear a little bit about that too, of sure. how reckoning with this that was humming in my life, the anxiety, the de- the addiction, and kind of some of the activity that followed that, like how has this journey opened you up to more creativity and finding your true self? Yep. Um, prepare for a really long answer because I'm a seven long-winded person and I'm unable I to edit. I love it. <laughs> I also am a verbal processor. Welcome. And my, yep, and my <laughs> wife is not here, so she can't be like, wrap it up, dude. Wrap it up. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. We're here um, for it. We're here for the long-winded answer. Okay. Uh, so I had always thought of myself as an incredibly insatiably creative person. I, as a seven, loved to make things. I loved to be in lots of different kinds of things. I put my my energy towards lots of different creative tasks and found a fair amount of professional success. And as I started to do the work that, so I, I took those two years off from acting. I went out to Seattle and uh, it was there that I started to, uh, Dan, he talks a lot about the nature of time. And the idea, well, no, no, I actually, let me pause there. Our first two years of marriage were insanely difficult because there were still places in my life Mm -hmm. that I was still acting out. There were things that I was still doing the work of healing and recovery. And one day my wife came into my office when I was in a meeting and wrote on my whiteboard, we need radical imagination now more than ever. She was talking about kind of a creative cultural renaissance. She's a writer, like I mentioned. But I read it as, oh, we. I'm missing something here. Yeah. Yeah. That my whole life, I had been a creative person and in service of making art. What I had not yet done is taken those creative energies and put them in service of my life. And mm. so... I started to unwind and kind of go back in the Rolodex of my memories to being in Seattle where Dan Allender talked about this idea of time. He says, 
we think of time as linear, past, present, future. How we experience time is inverted, past, future, present. And so by that, he means anything that happened to us in our past, particularly the events of harm and trauma and pain, we imagine that those are going to happen again in the future. And however we imagine our future is how we live in the present. And then the present becomes a new past and sort of, instead of embracing the possibility of what could be new, we just brace for the future that we know is already going to happen, right? And so when I started going through and doing story work and going back into those moments of my past and blessing the, the not the harm that happened, but the way that I had become an unreliable narrator. So Stephanie Fu, she says this in her new memoir, that uh, we are unreliable narrators of our past and our story. And so basically, Dan would say, the easiest thing to change is your past, which I thought is the most hyperbolic, ludicrous thing that you could ever say. But yeah. I started to realize it was true, is that if I went back into the stories of harm and pain and trauma of my past and saw how I might have been an unreliable narrator, bless that curious boy who just wanted mm -hmm. someone to love him. Yeah. All of a sudden that past that I thought was locked in this finite moment, it was set free. And if that past was changed, I could begin to radically, like my wife said, imagine a different future. And if I could imagine a different future, well, what would that mean for how I could live differently today? Mm. And so all of a sudden, this idea of creativity, which is, creating something new, living and thinking differently, all of the things that I had been doing as an artist my whole life, I began to put those tools into service, in service of my own life and healing. And all of a sudden, oh, it just, does this make sense? It, it just Yeah, unlocked. no, it's fascinating. It unlocked. Sorry, we're, we're processing. <laughs> okay, great. So um, just nodding along, like, yes, okay, yes. Good, 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 so good, tell good. us okay. more. Yeah, I told you it was going to be a, yeah, a long answer. And so, well, in uh, the other, the other uh, sort of like um, trifecta or trilogy of past, future, present is this idea of faith, hope, and love. That the idea of faith is not something that you have or get more of. It's actually a remembrance or a memory of goodness. Hmm. So kind of like if you're talking Christianity, if he came once, he'll come again. Mm -hmm. So that's what faith is. Hope is faith for the future, is a, is a memory for the future. And then love is how we practice it in the present. And so for me, as a creative person, it looking through my life through the lens of that, letting the space time continuum completely explode and implode and invert is now giving me the freedom to live a life that I never thought was possible. It's still wow. really hard. This is still my thing. This will always be my thing. But I'm feeling a level of freedom in my own life that certainly is unlocking spaces of creativity in my art that I also never thought possible just a circle it's a cycle it's yeah a, it's so interesting I've never heard it framed that way but it's really profound and I have I've said before like that I struggle some with the idea of hope you know <laughs> like mm -hmm. I like practically applying it for myself but it made me think oh shoot I've got work to do in my past to help unlock it you know yeah, yeah. because it's 
hope is a memory of the future, which is in a, it's like an interstellar type of mind F. Like, how do you figure that one out? Wow. You know, Lindsay, there's this great place called Onsite. I know. <laughs> right? help you figure right. out and reconcile with your and past therapy. and future. Yeah, done on site. There's always more work. It's so annoying. <laughs> it's so annoying. And it's so like. It's so it's, good. It is. It is. It is so good. Hey, friends. Whether for yourself or someone you love, OnSite has the perfect gift this holiday season to help optimize life and build meaning and value back into the human experience. Shop our digital classes and courses at onsiteisonline.com. You'll find courses to help you create sustainable rhythms, harness emotionally smart leadership in your workplace, and build the future you want to live. You'll also find classes on community, emotions, anxiety, trauma, and more. As always, use the code PODCAST for 15% off. Or you can shop our collection of curated emotional wellness resources, gifts, books, and apparel from the Onsite Mercantile at onsiteworkshops.com store. Use the code PODCAST for 20% off. Give the gift of emotional wellness this year. Everyone on your list will thank you. I feel like so often we talk about like, we don't want to go and dwell in the past because, you know, there's this like fear to go back and say, like, what am I going to find? And it's in the past. I want to let it have in the past. But this frame of how I relate with the past is going to relate with how I view the future and therefore live in the present. That whole idea is just really mind-blowing. And it's really invitational, I guess, into that work that you're talking about, Lindsay, of like, okay, I guess it is worth it. There's still stuff to do. That remembrance of good. Yeah. 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 Um, We had Dr. Uh, Allender on the podcast, and it was one of our most downloaded episodes. And I just think it's he brings such an interesting perspective. Lindsay and I were both like, our minds, the same way we were looking at you when you were describing that, we did that yeah. throughout the entire interview with him. Just like, yeah, yeah, he's yeah, yeah. I just took some extra processing moments. Um, <laughs> yeah, he will sure. do that to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I ran across a article that you had written when I was researching you for this interview about why all artists need therapists. And so you were talking about like, I've always been this creative person and I wonder if it's uh, the chicken or the egg. We find that people who gravitate towards creative professions or gravitates toward creative spaces often are in the midst of their own turmoil or in the midst of their own story and their past. And Mm -hmm. so I'd love to hear just your perspective on that of, is there a propensity for the artist community to come in with that? Or is that a result of the career they've signed up for? And um, I would just love to hear a little bit more about that. Yeah. Well, you're not going to like this one, Mackenzie, but it's both. (laughs) I do think both uh, and yeah, both and the theater saved my life. Mm. If I if I had not found the theater and found the community that that allowed me to express myself and express in creative ways the things that I felt and things that were going on in a safe space, and it's no surprise that I chose acting because if you've seen the movie Birdman, uh, Edward Norton's character who realizes that he cannot be a real person off of sta- off stage is what makes him such a mm. profound performer because he can disappear into someone else. That was the perfect place for a kid who grew up the way that I grew up. And so certainly I think a lot of artists can identify with coming from places of brokenness that art provides them a place to freely and safely express that. 
where I think that it it is it gets challenging and is harmful is when uh, that becomes sort of a badge of honor the uh, the tortured artist yeah. soul that I can only make when I'm in pain that I can only create if I'm just like rooting it out. These are the the fours that we love in our life, right? I'm a four. <laughs> It's fine, guys. Lindsay, what is the problem with going into your past (laughs) and digging up some junk? I know. I'm a self-preservation for. I want to survive it all. Yeah. Well, of course you do. Yes, (laughs) of course you do. So I think there can be, I think that the the issue is one, there becomes an over-identification with our pain. I think about the movie... Black Swan in the end where uh, Natalie Portman's character has given everything. She finally achieved her goal and she, you know, the film ends and sort of like, well, what really happened? My take was that she dies on stage. And I, I, I think about, I think I might've read, wrote this in that article or maybe something else, but just this idea of like, was it worth it that she gave herself to her Mm. art so deeply that she lost herself, that she lost her life and sometimes I'm like, for what? For like yeah. the ritual white people that stood to their feet and then like went out and had, you know, uh, cheesecake and decaf coffee before they got the A train back up, you know? I, I'm, I, I wonder that. And I even think about really presently someone like Aaron Carter who just mm. – uh, I, yeah. I was watching this Entertainment Tonight interview literally before we got on. And uh, I can't remember exactly when it was, but he talks about the first time he was on MTV Cribs. And moments before the film crew showed up, his parents told him he was that they were getting a divorce. And oh then he gosh. had to walk through the home that he was that he was no longer going to live in. Everything was going to change, and narrate through his life. Here's the drum set my parents got me. Here's where I, and he's weeping. And I think, oh man. How many of our artists, uh, because we want them, uh, we weren't made to be gods. We weren't created yeah. for that kind of attention. And I think that even now, you know, social media, one of the things he said that was so heartbreaking, he said, like, these fans helped create me and then they mm-hmm. tried to destroy me. Yeah. And yeah. I, f- I just, it's so heartbreaking. And so I, I, I don't know if I'm answering your question anymore, I've, Mackenzie, but I've, I do. Go ahead, Lindsay. I was just going to say, have you seen the new Selena Gomez documentary, My we Mind We were just watching me? the trailer uh, last night. It's so powerful. But it's like you see that throughout the movie. Mm-hmm. She, like, talks about kind of getting into it with this, like, joy and innocence. And it, it like, really filling her up. Yeah. You know, like, and being this wonderful yep. escape, I think she even calls it her, her work. And then sort of as... The fame comes alongside of it and the demands and yep. she has to continue to be that persona. Right. Um, regardless of how she feels and battling mental health issues and physical health issues, just yeah. the exhaustion of that. And then people not really seeing her as yeah. her, but as this, it's heartbreaking to watch it. And you're like, oh, it's just, it is like a cycle. It is. Mm-hmm. And, and there was something I turned to my wife and I was like, do you think Disney cares? Like, do you think mm-hmm. they, the, the, the sort of industrialized complex of entertainment bringing up these kids 
and then sort of releasing them to the wolves as we sort of get the new, you know, the new class coming in. And okay. it is why I wrote that article that every artist needs a therapist. So whether you are just grinding it out in coffee shops or trying to sell a book, hundreds of copies to date in my like I'm trying to be like, I'm trying to sell a book or whether you are a Disney superstar mm -hmm. or someone who is just like being launched into the stratosphere, you have to have people that you trust and love. And I think a therapist is a great space for that to happen <laughs> yeah. to remind you of your humanity, to remind you where you came from, to continue to connect to your body. And where are the places that this new fame or the struggle to find success, uh, where does that come from? And how is that propelling you to where you're going? And what is the care that we need to provide on a daily basis so that you don't end up like the catalog of incredibly gifted artists that we have lost along the way? Yeah, so good. And I think it's just a, a really interesting perspective on... Even just the world that we're living in, we're not made to consume as much media as we do, and we're not made to be seen by as many people as we are. Like, we are all curating an image that we can't maintain, um, I think, from social media. And I think it's a conversation that continues to come up, and I wonder what it will look like in 20 years. Will it be the kind of conversations that we have now about, like, with our parents about, like, yeah, just, we smoked in the car in every restaurant, and, <laughs> yeah, you know, totally. will it... Will that be yeah. the equivalent of like the social media and the demand that we have on people yeah. in the coming? Yeah. So it's just a really interesting thing to think through. And as I raise young daughters, I'm like, how do I do this well? I don't know. Same. Because Mackenzie, how old are yeah. yours? Uh, two. And I have a baby coming in January. So it's just oh my goodness. really early in the front end. But thank yeah, you. Yeah. So ours are 11. I've got three daughters, 11, nine, and five. So same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Blaine, something that you touched on earlier that I was curious about is sort of uh, your partnership, your marriage to Margaret and mm -hmm. like the evolution, like you've grown and changed yep. and recovered in some ways. Um, how have y'all done that together and individually in a way that's been helpful for you in your journey? Yep. So we, um, I'm recovering Continually. Yes. Um, and we met each other at a time in our life. We both came from families of addicts. So we were the perfect codependent pair. We were like just destined to destroy each other in the worst ways that codependent people can. Mm. And so we did not, we do not have a love story. We do not have like a, this we met each other in college and then we which we did but it was like eight years of grinding it out as we kept finding each other and destroying each other and then beginning to find ways that she's a she's also a four Lindsay so sevens and fours aren't you know naturally copacetic pairs um why are you eyebrowing, Mackenzie? I I don't know I think I've got a lot of fours or a lot of sevens in my life and yeah, I'm like. Yep. Yeah, you know, it's an it's an interesting tendency of like I'm drawn to that type of person with that introspection totally. who can have access to themselves in a way that I often can't. But yep. also, it, there's a tension there of like 
but do you have to stay there? Can we get a little higher? Can we get back? You know? Yeah. Totally. Yes. So I, um, I think uh, maybe the best way to describe it is to tell a story. In I think it was the 1600s in Paris, a man, a, a man by the name of uh, Jules Leotard began to create what we now know as the trapeze. And so he like set this thing up over a pool, the back and forth of the trapeze. And the pool was, you know, the net that he would would jump and fall on. The leotard, the leotard that we all know and love actually comes from Jules. I wonder that. Leotard. And so I, when I was uh, a kid, you know, we have Dancing with the Stars now. Back in the day, I'm 42. There was a show called Circus of the Stars. Is this? I I don't think I did that one. Well, it was a thing. And I remember Alfonso Ribera, who now is ironically on Dancing with the Stars, who my daughter is obsessed with, loves the show. In fact, for her birthday the other year, we did a cameo, paid for a cameo for Alfonso to wish her a happy birthday. This is all very full circle. I always wanted to be on that show. I never had the opportunity. I was not a star. I could not be in the circus. But when I was 30 years old, my best friend at the time bought me a gift certificate to go and do uh, a trapeze lesson downtown Chicago. Uh, the problem with doing it for real is that I'm actually afraid of heights. <laughs> mm. But I'm like, oh, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm going to do it afraid. And so I get up to the top. They have me all harnessed in. There's a woman by the name of Jenny who's like super bubbly and talking, you know, giving me all the rules and lessons. And I'm trying to avoid going as much as possible. So I'm just doing what I do and like seven funny, goofy, small talk stuff. And I'm like, you know, talk to me about this or what is this really? How uh, ironclad is that waiver that I signed or whatever? And then I was like, "Um, does anyone ever fly without a net? And she said, oh, no, no, that would be ridiculous. No one would ever fly without a net. I'm like, but sometimes I see that. I see that in a circus or whatever. She's like, when anyone is flying without a net, they're doing the most basic stuff. Like, it is rote. It is robotic. They know exactly what they're going to do. But if you want to see someone do something amazing on the trapeze, watch them do it with a net. Because Mm -hmm. they know they're going to be caught. And so two things stuck out in that moment. I was like, oh my God, I've been so boring my whole life thinking I've been doing like fantastic tricks through the air on the flying trapeze, but I was just doing like the most boring stuff. And then there's a light bulb that went off when I heard this woman say, oh, it's in the net. It's because of the net that the trapeze artist has the freedom to try all the different things. And so because of how my past had told me that I could never get close to someone without being harmed or without harming them, once I began to reframe and re-narrate that past and imagine a different future, it got me to feel safer in this idea that my love and our my commitment to M- Margaret and our commitment to marriage was the net. Mm. It was the place that we would be able to try the things we never tried before. And then one thing I said, I was like, well, do you ever replace the net? She said, oh no, never. We never replace the net. And so what do you do when it gets a hole? Like, does it ever break? She says, oh yeah, yeah, but we repair it. And the thing about the the place where we repair it is the net itself becomes stronger. And I was like, come on through Jenny. What? So good, yeah. Come on through Jenny. And then I did the trepies and it was amazing and I had so much fun. But that's how I think about 
Margaret, and I think about our relationship, that we are trying to repair the places that have been broken. We trust that in doing so, the net becomes stronger. And the net isn't this boring old place to like try old things. It's actually the context to do the exact opposite. And so we just keep trying. We just, we fail, we fall. And then we go, okay, we try to get connected back to our bodies because it isn't all just story work. Lindsay, it's something I think is really important to say. Like it isn't just going into your past. It is like connecting with your body, finding a safe place, and then trying to return, climb back up and go, let's jump again. And let's jump again. And let's jump again. And in doing that, we're like, oh, well, that's a new trick. We didn't know that we could do. Like that's a new little flippy dippy that we hadn't thought about doing before. And that's it. So now my wife and I just walk around in leotards, like very bedazzled Of course, as you do. What I love about that analogy is that, like, she's not your net. It's like the relationship is the net. Because, like, who wants to just be somebody's net? That's totally terrible. Yes. And while my wife came from an, uh, an, an, a home of addicts, for many mm-hmm. ways, she was the net, right? There are a lot yeah. of people who are in codependent relationships with addicts who have been the net and because that's where they feel safe, holding everything up, making sure everyone else is okay. Cause if everyone else is okay, then they're okay. And so her work has been, I'm not your net buddy. Yeah. I'm not your net. So for those of, you know, our codependent friends out there, we all got a little of that. Tell me about it. That's so good. That's such a a really beautiful analogy. Um, I have been loving the ways that you're grounding a lot of concepts throughout the interview. So I just want to call that out and like, thank you for that of analogies and the stories that have helped ground that because you could just be like, well, she's my net. And I'll be like, that's so codependent, but explaining it the way you do (laughs) is so good. Yeah. Um, Also, I do think people thinking of imagining me in a bedazzled leotard, I think is also super helpful. Yeah, it's an image that we need to just get this analogy to really land. I guess. That's it. right. Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, as we are rounding out our time with you, I feel like we would be remiss to not talk about your new book, Exit the Cave. And I'm wondering, what does Exit the Cave mean? I will do it also by way of a story. So everyone, come close. <laughs> uh, when I was 17, I was sitting in the back of a humanities class, and I heard the story of the cave, Plato's allegory of the cave. Plato, the very famous philosopher, not the like fun tactile toy that we play with as children. And the allegory is uh, in its most simplest sense. Plato tells the story of a group of people sitting in a cave and they're all looking at this giant cave wall and their face is looking up, just staring at shadows all day, every day. That's all they've ever known. One day someone gets up they realize that the chains that they have been uh, locked and fastened to uh, aren't actually locked at all. They slip right off. They look and they see everything has been sort of, it's an artifice. It's been created, manufactured, that there's actually this giant fire and objects are being walked past the fire to create the, the shadows. Beyond the fire, the hero sees a dot of light and they begin moving towards it. And it's a painful process, but eventually they get out of the cave And they see the truth. And it's sort of Plato's allegory for how someone comes to recognize what the truth is. And then there's a twist to the story because the hero, instead of running away from the cave as far as they could go, they return into the darkness. They stand before their 
tribe of people and they say, there is so much more. I was 17 when I heard that story sitting in the back of a humanities class in Blaine, Minnesota, in Blaine High School, which is, you just have to read the book to understand why that's a part of my story. And I'm like trembling, having listened to this story, thinking, I know what it feels like to live in a cave. At that point, my abuse had occurred. At that point, my acting out had begun. Uh, At that point, uh, my dad was in and out of our home. And so I felt seen because I knew what it looked felt like looked like to be in a dark cave looking at shadows. But also, I was so hopeful because of what the hero came back and said. He said, there's so much more. There's so much more. And so I spent the next part of my life up until even now, wondering and hoping and trying to see if that actually was true. And so all of us are in caves of one kind or another. All of us are looking at shadows that have been made for us or that we have made for ourselves. And the, the, the exiting the cave is going back into the darkness, looking at the shadows, trying to understand where we may have gotten the narration wrong, moving out and into the light, and then repeating the process. My wife says, uh, free people, free people. And that's what the hero in the cave did. That's what I hope I'm trying to do with the book is that I hope in the telling of my own story, the telling of my own secrets, the telling on myself, sharing the shadows that I have seen, that I have made for others, the darkness that I have sat in, and also the light of truth that I have also been so uh, incredibly Uh, graced, I don't know, is that the word I want to say, to have found and felt that somehow, some way, others might feel the same. So good. That's so powerful. So good. Um, And I just think about our conversation around the impact of creativity and like when what I have seen is someone who is in the creative space has such an exponential propensity and ability to to give away freedom and to give away health. And so when we can have mm. people in those influential spaces find health and get healthy and get free, then the result of that becomes exponential. So I love 100%. that. hundred percent. Yeah. Well, uh, we often ask, like, what's a practice that keeps you centered to uh, our guests? And so I'd love to hear for you, Blaine, what's a practice that you return to uh, that helps you stay centered? The practice for me right now is something called four square breathing. And it is this idea. Uh, so again, Lindsay, back to what you're saying. There, there is we. Uh, a lot of us are really afraid to go back into our past. A lot of us are like, "Well, it's already over." And oh God, I, I've done so much work, and now I still have more to do. But the story work is really f- to help us connect and reconnect to our bodies, so that it can be metabolized. Our stories, so that our cells can change, can adapt so that our brains can rewire so that our vagal nerves can um, be regenerated, actually. And so for me, as a seven who just wants to run from my pain, (laughs) uh, it's really two things is saying, stay with it. And I do that by four square breathing. So four square breathing is four counts in, we can all do it together, four counts in, Four counts holding, 
four counts out and four counts holding. And then we just make the square and just keep going up and down and up and down. And, and I do that, God, so much <laughs> during the day and definitely at night and in the morning when I f- wake up and I, 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 I do feel anxious sometimes still. Certainly t- today is the actual launch day. The book is out, available mm-hmm. everywhere. I have done so much four square breathing today. Like I am just because I'm just trying to stay connected uh, to my body, to try and stay present uh, to the moment. Uh, and that is the practice that is most helpful to me right now. That's great. That's good. Around the four square breathing, we just read a book for on-site book club called Why Has Nobody Told Me This? And really practically, she added looking at like a square something, whether it's a window or a frame or like, because I'm such a visual person, like tracking it with yep. my breath has been really helpful too. Like watching it with the, you know, the door frame or whatever while I'm breathing has also been really helpful. Totally. That is so good. I have not done that. There's a tip for your four square breathing. I I love it. I will look at my mirror and I will do that. Thanks so much, Blaine. This has been so enlightening. Thanks for having me. I'm really grateful. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call one 800 341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.